All right. Well, here we are. The last time you have to hear from me for a while. Um, we are concluding our discussion on worship. And up front, I want to admit that there was there's so much more that could be said. Certainly could have been said better. Um, and so I, I pray and I hope that this has been a, a time that has... Uh, been an encouragement for you, that it's strengthened you, that it's, uh, it's whet the appetite for further reflection upon worship, corporate worship. Um, here are a couple of books. There's one I left in the office, but um, a couple of books that have been a help to me, um, Engaging with God by David Peterson. Um, if you like to read and want to read some stuff. Uh, I just got this one. I haven't looked at it much, but it's... Um, it's it's a interpretation of the directory for worship. Um, it's called Scripture and Worship, and then Christ-centered worship. This one is a great book, Brian Chapel, and then uh, another one, Give Praise to God. I think Ligon Duncan is one of the editors of the book, and so um, I've basically just plagiarized them all all uh, trimester long. And so um, any help you've had, thank thank them, and probably Nick at some level. Um, so, a couple things that I want to talk about this uh, class, There's, we don't have a whole lot of time. I guess we started super late and maybe I pray forever, I don't know. Um, just a couple of things that I want to uh, close our time with. So, we're going to talk about the ordinances. Um, not so much necessarily the, the who and the, the what of the ordinances um, in terms of all the theology behind it, but just to point out the significance that they have in our worship. Um, And especially uh, given time constraints and its regularity, I want to talk about the Lord's Supper maybe a little bit more than baptism. And so um, there is and has been uh, uh, massive amounts of conversation throughout church history about the Lord's Supper and and really how it should be... uh, how we should partake of it, you know, so do you do it uh, at rail or while seated or at a table um, by elder service or personal profession, do you do it in total or by tincture, this um, uh, dipping of, you know, bread and wine with wine or juice with loaf or wafer, and so all, some of these discussions I think are well-meaning, um, and important, um, there has been a lot of vigorous and unflinching uh, discussion where people, I think, because of traditions, maybe, more so than anything else, get in a particular vein and refuse to, to budge on anything. Uh, and I don't think that's probably super helpful. Um, I think we see that, again, because it's, people are hooked on tradition rather than what the Bible teaches. The Lord's Supper begins in the context of a Passover meal. Um, in Matthew 26, 17 through 29, Jesus, uh, at the Last Supper, they're celebrating the Passover. He institutes the Lord's Supper. Um, and it, you can also probably even see it reflected in a meal shared um, after the resurrection in Luke 24 and 
Um, and there's a breakfast that Jesus has with his disciples in John 21 that there are some echoes of this Lord's Supper. And um, yet when Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, they are already partaking of the Lord's Supper in the context of a larger meal. And so when we think about the way that we partake of the Lord's Supper and that most church, at least in America, does today, there's quite a difference into what we might see the early church having, you know, what they're doing and what we're doing. Yet the essence of the Lord's Supper is preserved while the exact identical form is not. And so the essence, what the Lord's Supper is, what its point is, what it's useful for is, I think, preserved well. But the precise physical motions and everything involved may not be the same, or rather, they aren't the same. And so I think it's wise to be patient with regard to certain practices concerning the Lord's Supper, that we not get on a high horse assuming that there is one and only one way to ever in any way, shape, or form do it. Right? Um, But there are a few things mandated by the Scripture that we want to be sure to uh, hold on to in our worship. In short, in the Lord's Supper, we are feasting upon the wonders of His mercy. Right? We are feasting upon the wonders of God's mercy that He would send His only Son to live a perfect life for sinners like you and me and that He would still yet die the death that we deserve to die. And so we are remembering that. Um, We are enjoying a present communion with Him as we do as He... Uh, dwells with us by spirit and, um, and we proclaim um, his death looking forward to his return. So we are feasting upon the wonders of God's mercy rather than merely following a, pres- a prescribed set of steps. Right? The significance of the Lord's Supper is not in that what the physical act that you do, that somehow by doing it physically the right way, you, you can guarantee some blessing or, or whatever, but in the, as a representative of the spiritual partaking of Christ. Uh, there's debate about how often the Lord's Supper should be done. Um, I, I think... My encouragement would always be as often as you can. Uh, many churches tend to uh, find, I think, a good balance. You know, we do it here once a month. Um, other churches do it less, and I, I think they could convince me that that was, that was you know, good for them. What do you, what's the thing, though? Like, if you've ever heard, what's the objection to doing it very regularly? Like, this, what's that? Too ordinary? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you could grow numb to it like, well, we don't want it because it's right, it's special that there's a significance to the Lord's Supper. And so if you do it every single week, you could grow numb to it, it becomes ordinary, you're just going through the motions. Why is that maybe not 
that's probably not the argument to make as to why you should not do it so often. What do you think? Gr- yeah, growing, uh, growing up to it might come from something else other than just doing it over and over again. Nick? Right. So, that's the person who says, well, we don't want to do the Lord's Supper you know, every week or every month. We want to do it maybe just a couple times a year or whatever because we want it to stay special and we, want, we don't want to grow numb to them. That person, I've never heard that person then turn around and say, well, let me be consistent here and also say that the other means of grace should be done sporadically so that they maintain their significance for us, right? Um, a, a guy, a pastor, he... Um, he died uh, five days before I was born, Robert Rayburn. He said this, I've never heard any Christian say, let's be careful not to have our pastor preach the word too often. And so I, I think that makes the point well, that if we truly under, if we understand that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, that God is communicating grace to us, He's strengthening us spiritually as we, by faith, right, receive the Lord Jesus Christ in the Supper, that, that's not something that we would want to put off. Right? It's, no one's going to say, well, you don't, you know, if, if I'm saying, well, I don't find much, I don't, I'm not finding much in reading my Bible these days. I think I'm going to put it down for a while. And I'll pick it back up and it'll be, you know, what's the, what's the phrase, uh, distance makes the heart grow fonder or something like that? That doesn't, <laughs> that's not good advice when it comes to uh, spiritual growth. I'm going to go away from the Lord for a while. When I come back, you know, I'll just be drawn back because I'll love Him so much because I've missed Him. It works the opposite way, right? That the more we devote ourselves, and truly, I think even like in marriage we find that, right? That while uh, when you're apart, that there is a great joy in coming back, but if you truly devote yourselves to one another, you grow in your love, and the same with the Lord, that uh, we give ourselves to the Word and we find new things there. That when we come to the supper expectant and uh, desirous of it, um, can do that every week. So it's a heart problem, not a, not a regularity problem with how often we do uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, you know, or, or you know, even baptism. I mean, obviously that one's it's a little different because you can't uh, just... Well, we, we need to be blessed by a baptism, so we need to just get someone to, to be baptized. Um, but that's, you know, partly we desire for people to be converted so that we can continue to see those things. And I think, uh, you know, just two weeks ago, right, we saw Peyton baptized. And, you know, uh, if, you're the, if you're there for that, like, you know if you've seen the baptism, like, that is, even if you're not the one in the water being dunked, like, that is a great blessing to me. I am, my joy is greatly increased every baptism we have. I love seeing that. The Lord absolutely ministers to me in those times. And so, the same way that we keep Bible reading, praying, hearing sermons, and singing from becoming routine is the same way that we do it with the Ordinances. We realize that they are a means of grace that God has instituted that we might grow in grace and holiness 
and be further conformed to the image of His Son as His power is at work in us. And so, um, the, the ordinances are a picture of the Gospel, right? There are two images, as it were, two pictures that the God has instituted to be used in corporate worship, right? That's why, you know, you don't, we don't have pictures hanging on the wall. We don't have, you don't do dramas or things like that. It's because the, the visible, you know, the physical images, as it were, pictures that God has given us are baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are pictures of the gospel. Right? One says that we have, through the death, life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we have died, been raised, and raised um, to new life with Christ. And the other says that now with our new life, we partake of this life by faith, by receiving Christ as we receive the food. Right? There's a picture, an analogy there, that as you physically receive this the bread and the cup, so too you spiritually are to receive Christ. Christ is to our souls as bread is to our stomachs. And even more so, because when you eat bread, you still are going to die one day. But Christ is the everlasting nourishing bread. He says, John 6, I am the bread come down from heaven. So there is grace imparted to a person in baptism and in partaking of the Lord's Supper, but it is not because of the things themselves, which is uh, the Roman Catholic error, right? The uh, ex opera operato, because of the work working, uh, out of the work working, that it's the, in the actual just doing of the thing itself is the reason grace is imparted, Right? That you are that grace from God, saving grace, justifying grace, they would even say is imparted simply through the physical act itself. But what is necessary to receive grace in the Lord's Supper? Faith, right? That we must partake with faith. They do not profit us anything if we do not partake with faith. And in fact, Paul explicitly says that, which he's referring, I think, to dissension in the body, but you know, we, can, we can say that if we partake of these things without faith, we're probably we're just eating and drinking and baptizing further judgment on ourselves. They work to store up wrath for those who would abuse the gifts, who would abuse the gifts of God, who would come on their own terms rather than on God's. Um, Any thoughts, questions on that? Baptism, Lord's Supper? Cool. All right, musical styles uh, and music in in our worship. Uh, Nick talked a lot about this um, at the end of his class on culture. And so see that for some of the maybe more nuances of, of what to do with our music. But... Uh, what I kind of just want to say this morning is that when it comes to music in our worship, as with anything in our worship, we must prioritize 
the honor of the name of our king in the progress of his kingdom over and above our own personal desires and preferences. Um, Right? What is it that is going to glorify God rather than what's going to please me? Music has a significant ability to move us or repel us. Right? And I confess that uh, I've been in churches before where the, because of the music, it was, there was a difficulty there uh, in singing along. If it's really bad, if it's done really poorly, right, that is distracting. And so, you know, general principles that we try to apply here is that we want music that is, you know, first that it's biblically accurate and true. We want things that are singable, right? It may be true, but if it's in a key that only Casey Myers can sing in, then the rest of us are just going to kind of stand there like, okay, you know? It doesn't... doesn't and, and we've talked about the corporate nature of, of, of worship that we are together. Donnie Martin last week talked about singing to one another, Right? I've always, you've always kind of heard that, like, what's well, just, so an, an audience of one, and I, like he said, I like the, I think the drive behind that, like, if, sometimes it's, you're not performing for other people, or if you sing badly, you're, you're not trying to please other people, and so, sing to the Lord, truth, but, we are teaching one another, admonishing one another. In our songs. And that's why it's so important that, that's one of the reasons why it's so important that what we sing is true. And in churches today, I mean, I think that's one of the first, you know, one of the first, but it's one of the first things that you see uh, in, in weak churches is that you have, there are songs that are just not true. They're maybe really emotional and they sound really cool and they, they but the words are just bad. <laughs> Like, not even Christians sometimes. And you're like, how did this make it in to this worship service? But, likely, you're, you could also be here. Even in churches, I was going to say that, you know, you like to be hearing, you know, untrue things from the pulpit, but not necessarily. Sometimes you can be in a church where the, the preaching is really great, and then you're singing songs that you're like, you're, we are now kind of singing the opposite of, of what we just heard preached. Or I'm hearing preach the opposite of what I heard sung because we don't, because of how personal music can be and, and what it does for us is that people don't know how to apply that critical thinking to it. And so in our music, we're teaching, exhorting one another, we're praising God, singing unto Him and to one another. And so it's important that we have music that's true, that's singable, and that's, that's good, right? If it was done poorly, it also makes it unsingable. Uh, or if it was, you know, if you had, you know, rap or something, would probably not be something very singable corporately, at least not for us. Um, Bob, uh, Bob Self may be getting that question answered, uh, you know, up in Atlanta sometime. They may be trying to figure that out, but I'm, I'm going to guess that we're not going to be singing 
uh, you know, trouble anytime soon in here uh, because it's just corporately can't be sung. All right. Benedictions then to close, and then I want to end with one passage of Scripture. So a benediction, um, really uh, kind of a combo word, two, uh, two Latin words that uh, basically it just means a good, a good word. All right. And so it's the common way to close a worship service. Uh, and like the call to worship, it's not a mere formality. It's not just a, all right, well, how do I send these people out? How do I let them know that we're done? I guess I could just say, see you later. Um, if that's all that was necessary, that's all we would have to do. Get out, Get out right? Um, but a benediction here is this um, pronouncement of God's blessing upon the people. Um, Brian Chapel in his book says this, With these words, the covenant people are reminded of what they have just heard in worship, the promises they have just heard, so that they go into the world to do God's will with the confidence in His promised care and enabling. And so as such, the benediction is not merely a word of closing, but a word of sending and blessing. This blessed, forgiven, united people is now being sent out into the world as God's soldiers. The benediction is a reminder that we are starting a new week with the assurance of God's love and help and care, His blessing. The benediction, one, conveys the official endorsement of the church on all that has preceded and carries Christ's own blessing on His people for the work He now calls them to do. Um, We see these types of things uh, at the end of uh, all the epistles in the New Testament. There are these these benedictions, these blessings offered on Paul's readers. You know, something like uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. You know, a simple one that the the love of God um, and the fellowship of the Spirit and Something of Jesus, I can't remember. I should, though. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Right? That he's saying that now that you have read this letter, may fellowship of God, the grace of God, the love of God be with you. Grace has been communicated to you. And so in the benediction, we're you know, in a service that we have sung songs, we've heard prayers, we've prayed, we've confessed our sins, we've heard a sermon, um, we've experienced fellowship with one another. May God's love be with you. And, you know, when, uh, when you see Nick up there offering the benediction, his arms are outstretched and many in the congregation are doing the same. No magical, you know, formula there, but it's physical representation that there is and issuing forth of this blessing and a receiving of it. Um, and so, it is um, something that uh, we, we do to say that we desire this blessing to receive it and its strength to work in the week.